0: Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part two of an overview of the book of Genesis. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Now, when was that opportune time? in that garden that night before it was all going to happen. Satan has a deep presence there that night. It's a very opportune time to put thoughts in Jesus' mind, to tempt him. He's in excruciating agony like he had never known before. Satan is tempting him to not drink from that cup that the father's asked you to do that. What? Did the father really say that to you? Do you think your father really loves you? Do you think he'd really make you go through with something like that? Sweating blood, that's a real medical condition. It's sheer anguish. Jesus is struggling that night to keep his will strong because he wants to do the will of the Father in perfect obedience. And God sends an angel to minister to him. We studied that last year in Luke's Gospel. and. Jesus, Jesus's will is very intentional. He intentionally orders his will to the Father's will. He wants to do the Father's will in perfect obedience in all things. And he doesn't just passively let this happen to him. He is an active person. Participant because he wills it. He wills it. He could have been saying, he could have anything. Matthew's gospel says, Do you think, Jesus says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he would at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? He could have got out of it. He's not passive. He is going through with full intention and full will to do the will of the Father. So he's not a passive victim, but an active participant, willing to stay true to the Father's will in all things, even to death on a cross, which was actually where the The first victory, the victory over sin was won, right there on that cross is where he took on all our sin. And the devil stood there laughing mocking. He thought he had won it all. He thought he was the absolute victor. It's the ultimate pride coming up against the ultimate humility. It's such a juxtaposition of pride and humility. And the minute Jesus Christ died, he conquered all sin for all time for all humans. The deepest humility lured in the greatest pride into a deadly trap and snap. Jesus crushes the head of Satan on the cross. It's a trap. He lured Satan right in with the great humility, leads in the greatest pride. And this is the uh, least likely thing we would have ever imagined, this story. This did not look like a victory, right? This did not look like a vindication. This did not look, but it was. And, and the last laugh is on Satan. He got duped. He got duped. And this is the theme of every good story, every movie you go to, every good novel that you read, there's this, this, this evil and, and uh, juxtaposition of good and evil, pride and humility. Jesus had conquered sin on the cross in death, and Satan is duped, but he doesn't know it yet for three days. But he had to die. And why? Because the blood of Jesus is what set us free. The Father accepts the perfect blood sacrifice all the way through the Old Testament. He'll set up these blood sacrifices and this holy priesthood, and it has to be blood. And this is the perfect blood for the perfect atonement, the perfect blood atonement that the Father will accept from this spotless, non-blemished, victim, high priest, final high priest, eternal high priest, Jesus Christ. So the blood of Christ is very powerful. And Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It was the perfect blood atonement it was the permanent solution for a problem that will keep reoccurring our sin nothing but the blood of Jesus could atone for it and the father accepts it Jesus conquered sin on the cross through his death with that perfect blood sacrifice offered with strongest of will to the father and the father accepts it and that's why that blood is so precious it is the perfect once for all sacrifice And so when we receive that cup at Mass, and when the priest is transubstantiating, the power of the Holy Spirit comes down in the Epiclesis, and that wine changes to the blood of Christ, it's that same once-for-all sacrifice that we're remembering. And not only just remembering, but we're entering into that, that same Paschal mystery. And that's once for all he offered up himself. And in Luke 22 verse 19, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And we remember it at each and every mass, but more than just remembering it, we enter into it because it's now outside of time and outside of space. And it's the eternal mystery. We call it the Paschal mystery. And we actually enter into that same exact Paschal mystery that continues on once for all outside of time and space. Wow. Wow that's why you want to put your kids in that chalice you want to put your cancer in that chalice you want to put your job loss in that chalice the blood of christ is the most powerful thing it's what won freedom it's what unbound us and set us free the blood of jesus so mass is a place where we can again actually walk with god in the garden again the tree of life is always front and center that's jesus the crucifix it's supposed to be on every altar during the sacrifice of mass and we eat from the tree of life again. We pick the leaves, and the leaves are for the healing of the nations. And it's the medicine of immortality, the bread of angels, the new heavenly manna, the heavenly food, viaticum. It's all those things. Jesus, he, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy place, taking not the blood of goats and calves, but his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, time and time and time again, as the high priest enters the holy place yearly with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly, over and over and over again, since before the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, at the end of the age, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We actually enter into that same Paschal mystery that continues once for all, outside of time and space for all people all people are invited to this feast all people not all people take advantage of the invitation but all are invited to this feast because this is jesus and just as it is appointed for men to die once and after that comes judgment so christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time not to deal with sin Cause he's already dealt with that on the cross, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's us. We're eagerly waiting for him, right? We're eagerly waiting for that second coming, right? You're so excited. You can barely stand it, right? That's why you say it at mass every single week. In the Nicene Creed it's the last thing you say, you say, I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. You can't wait to break through the ground, right? Right. Peter says, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus conquered sin at the cross with his death, with his blood. But then he conquers death, where? In the tomb, when he rises from death itself. Jesus conquered death at the resurrection. Anybody in here afraid to die? I would think everybody is when it comes right down to it, because we're going to face the awesomeness of God. And he's going to say, did you tell anyone about me? Not one single person. You stayed silent. You knew all that stuff. All that st- you, you didn't tell a single soul because you, you, you were afraid. You're afraid to tell them about me. Really? You're going to be for the awesome God of the universe who created you, who wants you to have a zeal for souls, who wants you to help other people get back home. That resurrection, when he conquered death, the Lord said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Satan is finally squashed, crushed. And when he rose from death, Jesus conquered death. And that's why St. Paul can say, oh death, where is thy sting? Oh grave, where is thy victory? because we have eternal life with Jesus Christ. Paul lends his letter to the Romans like this. I would have you wise as to what is good and guileless as to what is evil. Then the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You're called to be a head crusher. You're called to know your enemy, know his tactics, know his strategies, so you can squash him. We've gone from death This is where we were. This is the bad news. He made you alive when you were dead through your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among these, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of our bodies and our minds. And so we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Here's the good news. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the love which he has loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and made us sit with him in the heavenly place with Jesus Christ. Now, even though this year we'll be studying Genesis, we're going to look at Genesis through the hermeneutical lens of Jesus Christ because we know the rest of the story. We cannot not look at Genesis, but through the lens of Jesus Christ. He's the hermeneutical key that will unlock so many passages for us. Saint Paul knew the Torah and he knew the prophets like the back of his hand. That's all he had. All he had was the Old Testament. There was no New Testament yet for hundreds of years. He had the Old Testament in his hands, and he knew it. He said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in, Cis- in uh, Cilicia and bought up in- brought up in the city at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the best rabbi around for teaching instruction in Torah. He was educated according to the strict manner of the law, the law of our fathers being zealous for God as you all are this day. He told the Philippians, if any other man thinks he has reason for more confidence in the flesh, i have more i'm circumcised on the eighth day of the people of israel i'm from the tribe of benjamin a hebrew born of hebrews as to the law a pharisee as to zeal a prosecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law i'm blameless confident assured of his salvation that he'll later work out with fear and trembling paul knew the old testament that's all he had and then he had a conversion on the way to damascus persecuting christians all paul had was his old testament and as he writes letters his postal mail. He doesn't know that his mail, his letters, are going to become 13 or 14 books of a new book called the New Testament hundreds of years later. He doesn't know that. He's seeing Jesus, the risen Jesus, the Alpha and Omega that appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He's seeing now the Old Testament through this new Jesus lens. So Paul's looking at scripture through new lenses after meeting and having a personal encounter with the risen Lord. The old lenses of the Old Testament, he was looking through the law. And the new lenses, the New Testament that he's writing in his postal mail, he's looking through the risen Christ. It's a big difference. So who was the author of Genesis? Good Omaha people. Really? Moses? Huh. That's what everyone thought for the first 17 centuries, Moses. Both Jewish and Christian sources, our dear old friend Moses, everyone for 17 centuries agreed that Moses wrote Torah. Not only Genesis, but the entire Torah, the book of the law, and that is five books, and the Hebrews read from from, uh, left to right, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all authored by Moses. The Greeks called the first five books the Pentateuch, 17 centuries. Even Jesus himself in the New Testament is calling it the book of Moses, right? Jesus himself. Traditionally, God revealed Torah to Moses at Mount Sinai in a verbal fashion, and Moses transcribed the dictation verbatim, word for word, from God. Although God stepped in to write the Ten Commandments, right, with his own finger. The finger of God wrote the first two stone tablets. But in the Talmud, rabbinical commentary, some believe that God may have revealed Torah piece by piece over the 40 years of desert wanderings to Moses, but still Moses recorded it. But then came the documentary hypothesis theory because we are so enlightened now. And the documentary hypothesis theory, frequently identified with the German scholar Julius Wellhausen, was almost universally accepted for most of the 20th century in biblical scholarship. But the consensus has now collapsed. And that's big news. That's big news. Older Bibles, and some of you might have an older Bible, and you might still get a JEPD footnote at the bottom in your commentary. But the most recent movement is a way from that. Um, like David Carr in his book, Changes in Pentateuchical Criticism, says the consensus of the DH documentary hypothesis theory have now collapsed or are in the midst of collapsing. Hebrew scriptures interpreted by German scholars post-Reformation who don't speak Hebrew, who don't know Hebraic oral traditions, are coming up with this theory imposing on the text something that is not there, not seeing the text as a unified whole. Uh, And they came up with this JEPD, Documentary Hypothesis, saying that Torah was not revealed to God by Moses, but represents a composite account from several documents. Four basic sources, the J, Yahwehist the E, Eloist, the P, Priestly source, and the D, Deuteronomist source. How many have heard of these? Yeah, we're trying to debunk this right now. (laughs) This is what the theory was, and it was all over the place. And there was also a redactor uh, the postulate of this combination of sources into, put them all in their current form, an editor called a redactor, took all these pieces and parts and put them all back together and, and came up with 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 this idea, J-E-P the redactor and the D sources and here are the scrolls and this color wrote this and then 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 we think they came in here and wrote this and then the redactor put all these together and, and it looks something like this this is who wrote Genesis and Torah. This is a theory. It's, it, it also led to the historical critical method of biblical scholarship. Do you know what a theory is? In the dictionary, I looked it up. A supposition or a system of ideas intended to explain something, especially one based on general principles, independent of the thing to be explained. Hmm. Some synonyms, argument, assumption, concept, Doctrine, speculation, suspicion, codification, conjecture, impression, presumption, formularization. No proof of this theory has ever been found. None of the sources, none of the writings, none of the pieces, none of the parts. Nothing in the Dead Sea Scrolls found in 1946. Nothing. Nothing. No sources from this theory have ever been found. Julius Wellhausen died in 1918. He was the German biblical scholar and orientalist behind this the originator of this theory. He was the son of a Protestant pastor, and he studied theology at the University of Göttingen, a very prestigious university founded by King George II and president of the university. And he became a specialist in Old Testament history, In and uh, he was there through 1870. In 1872, he was appointed a theology professor at a different university, but he resigned from faculty 10 years later in 1882, stating he must resign Sign for what? Reasons of conscience. He has to step down for reasons of conscience. And this is what it said in his resignation letter, and I quote, I became a theologian because the scientific treatment of the Bible interested me. Only gradually did I come to understand that a professor of theology also has the practical task of preparing the students for service in the Protestant church, and that I am not adequate to this practical task. But that instead, despite all caution on my part, I make my hearers unfit. For their office i make these pastors unfit for their office since then my theological professorship has been weighing heavily on my conscience and i must resign the scientific treatment of the bible interested me friends the bible is not a science book the Bible is not a history book and if you can't take a scientific dissection of the Word of God and that is exactly what the documentary hypothesis did it dissected the living active Word of God that is God breathed that is supposed to be whole and living and active and interpreted as an entire Canon all the books fit together perfectly like a jigsaw puzzle everyone inspired by God by different authors at different times across different countries and and, and they all fit Fit. And it must be a unified whole, not dissected into pieces and parts. You know, I'm an old high school science teacher. What happens when you take something living and then you dissect it, which you all did in seventh grade when you had to dissect your frog and you laid him on the tray and you started chopping him up with your friends and you had to find all these different pieces. Your teacher said, I want you to find the spleen and the liver and the stomach and the heart. And you had to get them all out and you're going to have an oral quiz on this. She's going to come around and, and test you. And it and here are all your pieces and parts all over the lab table. And it didn't even look like a living thing anymore that was recognizable, right? That's what happened to scripture with the documentary hypothesis theory. It got dissected. The living whole got dissected to unrecognizable. The living thing, the living word of God under this type of scholarship bred skepticism in God's word instead of faith in God's word as it stands. It tried to dissect it apart in pieces, and part, and academic biblical scholars worldwide were always trying to come up with something new, something new they could publish, something new, a new idea, a new theory, a new something, a new, I want to make a paper, I want to make a book in the chapter, I want to get, and, and this wasn't it. Dissecting God's word into something almost unrecognizable. Instead of Moses as author, it's an academic theory, never proven, never found, dissecting the whole into pieces and parts that were unrecognizable and imposing on the text something that is not there. Not a unified whole. So St. Paul is looking at his Old Testament through the lenses of Jesus. These new hermeneutical lenses. And Jesus is the key to unlock everything in the Old Testament and in Genesis this year. So we're moving from skepticism and doubting the Bible and trying to find loopholes and gotcha, oh there's a mistake, to faith. Seeing the Bible as a treasured book of faith to be handed on to the next generation, to be put in our hearts and in our minds and in our memories and treasured and loved. It's Jesus. Not to disprove it, but to embrace it with faith. So as the scales were falling from Paul's eyes, and where does Paul go after Ananias baptizes him? He heads to the desert in Arabia for three years, and I know he was just pouring over the scriptures, making the connections in the desert, sitting there with his Bible and saying, Jesus, oh, I see Jesus here, I see Jesus, I see Jesus here, I seeing Jesus on every page. And Saint Augustine, the one Monica prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for, became a bishop, and he said this, in the Old Testament, the new is concealed, and in the New Testament, the old is revealed. So we're going into hidden territory in Genesis, but it's all going to be illuminated when we put on our Jesus glasses. So St. Paul has that Old Testament. He goes into Arabia for three years, and I'm sure he prayed, and I'm sure he poured over, and he's full of the Holy Spirit, and he starts understanding insights. And that's why we read his letters to this day. And we will be studying Romans and Ephesians next year. They wrote the book for us for this class. We order 500 books from them every year, and I were their biggest order. And I said, you don't have one on Paul. I w- well, we have Acts and Pauline letters. I said, no, we want meat. We want one book. We want Romans. And they said, how about Romans and Ephesians? Perfect. Paul was now looking at scriptures through new lenses after meeting jesus the torah came alive in a new way the word of god is living and active in a unified word the entire canon of scripture started making sense so i like this little comic moses or moses j-e-p-d and the artist b.a miller puts the caption one case where four-part harmony doesn't work So we'll go with Moses as the primary author of Genesis this year. You were right. The Catholic Bible has 73 books. If you're using a Protestant Bible, you'll be seven books short. We, we didn't add seven books. The Protestants took them out. They were there for the several hundred years uh, before that. There are all different genres of scripture books. There's law books, history books, poetry books, letters, prophecy, wisdom, apocryphal literature. It's kind of like reading a newspaper. So you go to your favorite section, right? You know the sports or the editorial. That's different than the classified ads. If you want to go to a rummage sale but, and the front page is going to have all the newsy stuff and the, the entertainment page where you're looking for a movie to go to and the funnies that they, if you just want a mindless laughter. So that's how the Bible is. There's all different categories, all different genres, and we have to interpret them all different ways. We can't read them all the same. So Genesis is mixed. We're going to get a lot of different things, but the first three chapters is going to be the most brilliant allegorical poetry you've ever heard in your entire life. And the truths hidden there with our Jesus glasses on are so foundational. They are just the building block of everything else. So I'm really glad you're here for this study because this is a crucial, foundation for a biblical worldview to know Genesis. Is Genesis a literal interpretation? Catholics do have four ways we interpret scripture, and the first is literal, but Genesis is not literal. Uh, we'll look at the literal, but we won't interpret it literally. It uh, was Genesis, was a world created in six 24-hour days. The early church fathers did not take Genesis literally, and there was wide and varied opinions on how long creation took. And they would spar about it and argue and write. Some said only a few days, others argued for much longer, an indefinite period. They used scriptures like 2 Peter which says, With the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years are as one day. So God's time is not our time. As the psalmist also says in Psalm 90, For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. The early church fathers did not take Genesis literally. was created on the first day. We'll study this next week. But the sun was not created until day 4. Hmm, interesting. Adam was told he would die the day he ate the forbidden tree. Yet he lives to be 930 years old in Genesis 5:5. Is Genesis a literal interpretation? No, the author didn't intend it to be. Moses didn't intend it to be. It's a beautiful poetic allegory. You're going to see so many truths. It is not literal. This beautiful poetic allegory. What's an allegory? A story, a poem, a picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning, typically a moral one. So that's going to be fun. Synonyms for allegory. Parable, analogy, metaphor, symbol, emblem, story, tale, Myth. myth, myth, myth. Myth, myth, oops, sorry, myth, legend, saga, fable, apologue. These are synonyms for allegory. Myth is the one that bothers me because I've had this happen. We have five sons. What happens when a theology teacher calls Genesis a myth? What do the students hear about Genesis? Oh, mom, Genesis is only a myth. It's not true. It's a myth. They don't understand. They think a myth means not true. Nothing could be further from the truth because this beautiful poetical allegory is steeped in the deepest fundamental truths of the human person. Like I am. I am what? What is our deepest, deepest, deepest identity? It's in Genesis. Peter Herbeck at our 10-year anniversary conference this week had us repeat. We felt a little awkward and kind of were laughing nervously when he made us stand up and and he'd say, I am! And we say, I am! chosen chosen i am i am beloved beloved and i said peter i take him to the airport why do you do that? You know, like, and he goes, because people don't know who they are. And if they stand up and if they say it and if they hear it enough times, maybe they'll start believing that they are a beloved daughter of God or a beloved son of God because they're so wounded and so broken and they never hear it. We need to hear it. We need to hear it spoken out loud that we are beloved daughters and sons of God. We don't know our deepest, deepest, deepest identity because someone stole it in the garden the thief, the liar, the murderer. It was the biggest identity theft in the cosmos. We are a beloved son or daughter of God. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, is the firstborn of the dead. And your identity is in the risen Jesus Christ. You are baptized into him. It's no longer you who live, but he who lives in you and me. And he's our brother now. He tells Mary Magdalene, I am ascending to my father and to your father. That makes us siblings. We got the same father. We're brother and sister in God, in Christ, through Christ. He's the new Adam. In the garden with Mary Magdalene, see his shovel? She mistook him for what? The gardener. What was Adam with his thorns and thistles after the fall? The gardener. He's the firstborn son of a new creation. There's his shovel. There it is. And he says, behold, I make all things new. A new creation. So that we can walk with God in the garden once again. And those who walk with God, those who walk with Jesus Christ, always reach their final destination. And our final destination is to get home to the heart of the Trinity and our identity is in christ let's pray lord jesus we offer you this year and all that it holds we thank you for your word that it's living and active and whole and that it heals us please instruct us jesus be our teacher holy spirit be the convictor of our hearts as we hear this word may we be changed this year into a new creation in you thank you for 10 years together thank you for a decade of studying your word thank us Thank you for what you want to do now. We love you, and we're excited to be on this voyage with you, the compass that will take us home back to the Father. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. That was part two of an overview of the book of Genesis on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.